that I have called Letters to Leaders. I'd like to do a recap for you today of this series. It'll just be a brief recap. Also to, to refocus us a little bit on why we have been working our way through both of the letters to Timothy and to Titus. And then to leave us with some implications that I think we have learned from this series. Implications about leadership in general. So for those of you that haven't been here, we have been working our way through First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. These are letters that Paul wrote uh, to two young leaders. Um, these leaders were, in some cases, struggling a little bit. They were struggling with the early church. They were struggling with how to make sense of all the, the, the different uh, cultures and doctrines and things that were weighing in upon this gospel that Paul had brought to these new places. And Paul, in his concern for these leaders, wrote these letters to encourage them and challenge them and, and kind of focus them on what it meant uh, to lead this early Christian movement. But maybe you've noticed by application over the course of this summer, we have very intentionally, myself and those who have brought messages to you over the summer, said that these letters are also applicable to you and I. These letters are applicable to you and I because as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are also called to be leaders in the world around us and to be leaders in the Christian church. And so by application, we have made these letters a little bit more relevant to us. We titled the series Letters to Leaders because that is, in many ways, what these letters represent. But not just leaders in like pastoral sense, but leaders in the sense of we are all part of the body of Christ and called to live out this faith in the world around us. When I chose this series, and I chose it uh, many, many, many months ago, when I chose this series, what I was reflecting upon is how the writer, Paul, was referring to this group of people. And we'll read that, and you just read it here in Titus chapter 3. It says, remind the believers. And I find that interesting because as I look at the church and as I look at us and as I reflect on who we are, uh, you have to recall a little bit about who we are as a church, not just now, but historically. One of the current bishops of the Free Methodist Church was a longtime pastor at New Hope. We have superintendents right now serving in the Free Methodist Church who were pastors here at New Hope. We have longtime directors of area missions and evangelism and outreach that founded this particular church. We have a history of leadership. We have many individuals right now in this congregation who are serving on conference boards and serving as delegates and other things in the broader Free Methodist Church. And we have missionaries, I mentioned to you early, Randy and Sandy and others who are going to be going to Rwanda in just a couple of weeks. This church is a church filled with leaders, with leadership potential, and historically has been founded to raise up leaders. And so when I was thinking about a, a series that we could preach over the summer, we could teach a little bit over the summer, it was geared to a church full of believers and a church full of leaders. Not every sermon series is always geared to you 
as believers and leaders. Some series, and we're going to be entering into one here in the fall, are a little bit more geared towards those who are coming up behind, who are kind of trying to figure their way out in this life of faith and trying to search out what does it really mean to to be a person of faith. And so some series are geared a little different, but not this particular one. And so as we enter into this particular passage this morning, I want you to be thinking that Paul could be writing to you. Let's just go back to Titus chapter 3, verse 1, if you're following along. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. And before I do that, let me just put this thought in your mind as we conclude our series today. With Christ, you are equipped to always do what is good. Remember that. With Christ. Now when I first wrote that statement down, I didn't have the with Christ part. Because I was reading these and it was talking about doing good. I was reading these verses and and as I wrote it down and as I was reflecting, I was like, no, this isn't just some self-help kind of stuff. This isn't just that you in and of yourselves are good. It's that with Christ, you have the power as a believer to do good, whatever is good in this world around you. And so let's remember that as we're walking through these verses today. Let me start with verse 1. It says uh, of chapter 3, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. This is Paul talking to Titus, reminding him about what and how the believers should live. Now, interestingly enough, if you were to go back to chapter 1 and read in verse 12, you would have a picture of what Paul might have had in his mind about who the Cretans were. Titus was sent to Crete. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, if you want to flip back over there, it says, Even their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. That's not a picture of conformity, is it? That's not a picture of encouragement, is it? That's probably what Paul had in his mind, and he didn't have to say it. He said, one of your own people said that about you. So I'm just quoting what your own people said, but that's a nice way of saying they weren't really conforming. They weren't a conformist group. And Paul is writing here in the first verse of chapter 3, says, remind the believers, they're to be different. Believers are called to be different. They're called to be law-abiding and obedient citizens, respecting the laws and respecting the local government. And then he says also that they are always ready to do what is good. Now what's interesting about that phrase, always ready to do what is good, is it all, it's, it's both a challenge, it, it sets forth what we're supposed to do, but it also sets forth a limitation for us. We're always called to do what is good. But, you can also read into that and say we're always called to only do what is good. Notice the difference? We're always called to do good. That is a challenge for every one of us, that we live in the world, and as we have opportunity, we should do good in the world. But there are times when what's going on around us demands a different kind of witness. There are times when things are going on all around us when we might be called to, 
as Peter said in the book of Acts, to obey God rather than men. Let's not forget the whole picture of Scripture. As Paul is writing to the people, as he's writing to you and I as believers, we are called to always do what is good, but to only do what is good. Amen? And so sometimes there are things, and we have seen these things happen throughout our history in this country, that there are some things that are happening all around us, culturally speaking and otherwise, where we must stand up and take a stand that is sometimes countercultural or sometimes against what those in our spheres of influence are doing, and sometimes even what the government says is right. It made me think this week of what we do right here at New Hope through our immigration legal services. Patty Welch is working through the ILS, uh, our immigration legal services, and she is uh, bound by the government to do things a certain way, and there is a massive process involved in helping our families gain uh, status, uh, civil status within our country. There's a massive process that's involved in that. And then uh, another process for uniting families. And the whole immigration thing is near and dear to our hearts. But if you were to talk with Pat, if you were to have a conversation with Patty, as much as she's bound by the law, she's also extremely frustrated by the laws, as some of you are as well. The immigration system in our country is broken. And there are people, if you would look down at the border, there are kids separated from their children, and there are things going on in the medical care, medical care being withheld from people in the immigration detention centers, and there are new laws for merit-based civil status and gaining access and immigration status. It's all changing so fast and it's hurting. It's putting undue pressure. It's what we might call oppressive to the people that are trying to work through those systems. And we are on the front lines. We see that. We see how it's impacting. It's not something where we sit and watch the news and we say that's good or that's bad. No, we, Patty's living it out every week with a caseload that she can't manage because people are confused about how to get through this process. And so as a community of people, when we are called to do what is good, we are called to help our brothers and our sisters find ways to connect into this country, but we are also called to raise awareness in the ways that that is an unjust process and an unjust system and putting unjust burdens on our people. The very people that you saw right here are in our offices working through this process. So when Paul says, remind the believers, that's you and I, to submit to the government and its officers, yes, we are to be law-abiding citizens, conformists, you might say, most of the time, always ready to do what is good, always ready to help out. But there are times when we must also take a stand. And we must work through some issues on the other side to make this world and to make this environment that we call the church welcoming and open and accessible to anybody that's interested. He goes on to say they must not slander anyone and they must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. As believers, we approach the process maybe a little differently. We don't get into endless debates. That was one of the things, if you read through the letters to Timothy and to Titus, they don't 
he said, don't get into these endless debates about genealogies and all the laws and the customs and all that stuff. He's, he just reminded repeatedly Timothy and Titus, don't get sucked into all the distractions. Don't get sucked into all of that stuff. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ, the message on Jesus Christ, and what he's done for the people. Preach that message, and as a result of that message, go out and do what is good. That's the message that he's leaving with Titus and with Timothy. With Timothy, Let's go out and let's do what is good. He gives us the reason, if you look here in verse 3. Once, now he's talking to Titus, and he's reminding Titus, once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and we became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of envy and we hated each other. That was some of our stories. That's just the story of humanity. That's the story since Adam in the rebellion in the garden, Adam and Eve in that, that sense that I, I know better, I can be like God. Or That's the sense that has been carried all the way through history. Once, you and I were like that too. So it's not as if we go around like looking down on people and saying, oh, we're better than you. No, we, we go through this life remembering where we've come from. We go through this life remembering that we were once in a lowly estate and, and God reached down to us as well. God's mercy, God's grace was necessary and sufficient to draw us into a right relationship with Him. Verse 4, but... When God our Savior revealed His kindness and love. His kindness and His love. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done. That's a reminder for all of us. Our righteousness isn't due to anything that you and I do. Our righteousness, in another passage, Paul says, is as filthy rags. Like... If you're looking to yourself and and you're going to God and you're entering into the king's court and you're saying to yourself, God, I'm here and I'm presenting myself. God's not thinking that that's necessary. He did it for you. He came to you. He condescended because there was no way to have that relationship with him. He revealed his kindness and love. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He washed away. For any student of Scripture, you should be careful there. That's not necessarily a reference to baptism. We don't believe that your sins are washed away in baptism. We believe that baptism is a symbol and something that happens after all of that has occurred, that the Holy Spirit has come into you and changed you and transformed your life and you've given your life to Christ and you enter into the water and are raised again as a symbol of the transformation that has occurred in your life. So when it says here, he washed away, he's not talking about baptism. He is talking about Washing all that stuff away. The work, the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is at work there. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Generously. He gave it freely. 
The gift of the Holy Spirit is available to every one of us to go out and to do good things. Because of His grace, He declared us righteous. Because of His grace. Because of His grace. Not by anything that you have done, but because of His grace, He has declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. That's the work of Jesus Christ. That, verses 4 through 7 in the Greek, is one long sentence. It is a a, a picture of the story of salvation. It is a picture of the declaration of what God has done for you and I. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's reminding Titus to remind you and I, the believers, that this is what we are called to. We are called to live in the world with the recognition of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say this. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on these teachings. It's a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. Why all of this? Why that saying? Why do we recognize and remember and recall what Jesus has done for us? So that you can go out and do good. Do all the good that you can and do only what's good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. You and me and anyone that you encounter, these teachings are beneficial and available to everyone. That's a good word. Amen? I want to just briefly review with you a few other verses that call us to this good, these actions that are good, this life of good. Uh, Gordon Fee is a, a commentator and pretty well known, and he has done some work in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, and he said that the, the phrase good works actually appears 14 times in these small epistles, these pastoral epistles. 14 times. He said that it appears so often in Titus that it actually becomes probably the key message of Paul's letter to Titus is to go and do good works. It reminds us a little bit of James, where James says in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. It's the cornerstone of our Wesleyan heritage, our Wesleyan roots. We believe that we don't just get saved for ourselves. We don't just get saved to go to heaven. I was actually on the way to church this morning and I turned on the radio and I like to listen to some gospel music once in a while and I heard a a preacher saying that, that God just came. He came down to save you, to take you to heaven. And I said, no, that's not the story. He doesn't just come to take us out of this life. He comes to transform us, to change us, so that we can transform this world because His kingdom has come. His will will be done here and now. So the world that is being changed is here and now, not some future world. Yes, it will all be changed someday, but we are not just called and plucked away. We are called to be transformed in the here and now. Let's just review some of these verses together. Paul's exhortations. Let's go back to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Couldn't be more clear. That is a divine purpose. Titus 3, 1b, we've already read it. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. And notice he puts there, gently and with humility. Because it's easy to go and bash people over the head with your goodness. 
It's a lot harder to be gentle and humble and engage people on their terms. Because they might not know all of the reasons behind your motivations. Titus 3.8, we just read it again. All who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. Our motivation, our purpose. 2 Timothy 3.17, and we heard about this from Olivier many, many weeks ago. It says, all scripture becomes the foundation for truth. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to equip his people to do every good work. All the scripture is useful to train you and teach you to do good things, to do good works. And I just had to give a little plug for where we're going next week. Next week we start a new sermon series. It's called Masterpiece in Progress. We're going to be working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians and we're going to be looking at how Paul uh, was encouraging the Ephesians for how to reconnect and love and refocus on their relationship with Jesus Christ and the, the wonderful relationship that can be had when we see ourselves through Christ and not necessarily as we always see ourselves, which is sometimes we're a little harder on ourselves, Right? But what does Paul say in Ephesians 2.10? He says, for we are God's masterpiece. Amen? Our sermon series, Masterpiece in Progress. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us to do long ago. I want to reiterate for you, remind you, that today you are a Christian leader. You are all Christian leaders. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the power in and from the Holy Spirit. A power that transcends any power that the world can conjure up. This is a power through the Holy Spirit that gives God authority over all that we see. And He has delegated that authority to you and to me. To be partners with Him. To be stewards of His great creation. We must believe this. It's hard sometimes to believe this. It's hard to believe this about ourselves. And if anybody has struggles, if they go through the negative self-talk, come and talk to me. I'm the chief negative self-talker. Alright? Let's talk about what it's like to work through negative thinking. Because we have to live into the implications of leadership. The implications of leadership. And that's where I want to turn for just a couple of minutes. These are some things that I've been thinking as I close out this series. These are some things that I want us as believers to take away. I'm just calling them leadership implications. And the first one is this. Leadership is not the same as coercion. Some of you know leaders who only are in positions of influence because of the power that they wield. They don't necessarily wield a following. They just force people to do what they say because they have some kind of power over them. Sometimes it's a manipulative power. Sometimes it's an economic power. Sometimes it's a social power. Some things are coming to your minds right now of what fits that bill. But that's not leadership. Leadership is not coercion. And I don't want you to leave this series thinking that somehow the power, we were talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, that the power of the Holy Spirit is meant to coerce change. We only need to look at Jesus and His example. Jesus didn't go around coercing change. He lived humbly. He served. He 
His heart of compassion poured out in service to others. He brought healing. He changed lives. He transformed the world around him. But it was through his compassion, his love, his grace, his mercy that he attracted a following. He never forced anybody to follow him. He simply presented truth and love in a way that was so gracious and so meek and so mild and so compelling that people attracted, were attracted to him, whether they agreed with him or not. So don't equate leadership with coercion. The second implication is this. God is all-powerful, self-contained, and completely able. Can I get an amen to that one? Amen. Amen. As a leader, one of the things that I note is that Jesus never appealed to anybody else for help. Jesus went around believing that he, in and of himself, was enough to bring about the change that people needed. That's powerful. That's powerful. He only asked them to pray for the leaders. Paul only asked Titus and Timothy to pray for the leaders. Because the change that needed to happen was possible because of who Jesus Christ was. So we pray. We pray believing that Jesus Christ is enough. We pray believing that His kingdom has come. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray believing that God is able. Amen? And I ask the question, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Where in our church do we not see the evidence of His power at work? Where in our church are we flagging and and looking out to the world for ways to help the people that are right here that we could help ourselves? Where is God's power not on display? And rather than going out and trying to figure it out, wait, let's gather and let's pray and let's seek God's help to achieve the things that we know are good, that we know are necessary. Let's do some good in the power of a God who is able to accomplish all things. Third implication. Let's not get distracted. It is easy. It is easy as a leader to get distracted. It is easy in this world, in this culture that we live in, to get brought down by endless debates and discussions and different things that would seek to distract us. It's the same thing that Timothy and Titus were experiencing. They were trying to be led down these paths of who is God and trying to prove Him through genealogy and what are the Jewish laws and the customs and how should we live? And and Paul said, stop with all of that. Just remember Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel. Preach the message. Proclaim the truth. And as you do, go out and do some good as a result of it because of who Jesus Christ is. Let's not get distracted. It is too easy to get distracted in our world. And the fourth implication is this. The time is now. The time is now. This isn't some future goal that we are preparing for. The time is right now. Leadership isn't something that you wait for. As a Christian, as a believer, you grow in your understanding of who God is. You pray, you grow in faith, you surround yourself with people who can encourage you and grow. And you exercise those gifts, those talents that God has given to you. You don't wait. We're not waiting for anything. Today, you can exercise 
that gift. We are, you and I, culture builders. That's what God made us to be. He made us in his image and he put us on this earth to both populate it but also to steward it. And as such, we are the culture builders. The whole story of scripture from the beginning to the end is one of a garden to a city. And guess what happens in the journey? Culture gets built. That's you and I. We are the people working to transform what God started with his help as stewards in that journey. So that's what we are called as leaders to live out. Here's a quote by Dallas Willard. Some of you know he's one of my favorite authors and and theologians and philosophers. And I quote this, a version of this to many of you. You've heard me say it, so I'm just going to say it for everybody this morning. He says uh, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, do the next right thing you know you ought to do. How do you know what God's will is? You don't necessarily have the picture of the future, but you know that this is what God's calling us to do. This is what he's telling Titus to do and Timothy. Go out and do good. And Willard says, do the next right thing that you know you ought to do. Nothing will drive you into the kingdom of God like trying to do the next thing that is right. Because you will need help. And you will get it. Because that's where God is. You want to encounter God. You want to know his will. Go out and do what is right. Do what is good. And when you run into struggles, pray. Ask him to help you and he will meet you there. Those are the implications for me. You probably could come up with several others. Because you are leaders. You are believers. And there are several others. And I encourage you to keep thinking through these letters. I'd like to leave us today with some next steps. These are just a few. You might have some already in your mind. But these are some next steps for us as I think we close out this series. One is, the first one is tell the story. And when I say tell the story, I'm talking about becoming his witness. Tell his story and tell your story. Tell his story. It's a good story to tell. Amen? But your witness to that story is also powerful. Why do you follow that story? What makes it so significant? Why should somebody else be connected to that story? You need to share why you're connected to that story. So tell the story. Tell his story and tell your story. Find somebody to do that with between now and next week. Spend some time sharing your stories. Building community. The second one is stand up for truth. Stand up for truth. Not just gospel truth, but what you know to be right. What you believe to be right. Stand up for truth. Because as Christians in a world that is just all over the map with what we believe and what we think and how we're living. In a world that's all over the map, we have to stand for what God says to stand for. So stand up for truth as leaders. That's what leaders do. They don't shrink when the going gets tough. And I can tell you, there have been times I want to just hide. My escape mechanism is I just want to go to sleep. That's me. You know that one? Yeah. Some people know that one. It's just too much. And I just want to go to sleep. I just want to escape it all. But we can't. We have to stand up for truth. We have to live in the world that we have been placed. The third one is to serve others. 
serve. Serve through your church leaders, believers. Serve through your church. Serve in your community. Serve in your family. There are many different ways to serve in the world around you. If you need a way to plug into this church, I can give you a dozen right off the top of my head. If you need a way to plug into your community, I can give you ideas to plug into your community from neighborhood associations to marches to walks to whatever it is. Plug into your community and serve your family. Do the dishes. Make your bed, kids. Serve your family. It's not hard to find ways to do what is good in the world around us. And it doesn't have to be a grand social change movement. Maybe one of you will be the next Martin Luther King or Billy Graham or whoever it is. That's something to aspire to. Fantastic. But most of us will just be sons and daughters and husbands and wives and friends and uncles and aunts. And that's good enough. Do good in those settings. Let's do some good. The fourth one is pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. That was Paul's word to Timothy. Pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. All of that, all of that is designed to lead us to do good. Leaders, you are called to do what is good. And only what is good. To serve God, to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor and serve them as you serve yourselves, as you love yourselves. There is much more we could glean from Timothy and Titus. And hopefully, you will continue to do that. We're turning the corner into next week, uh, into the fall, into the school year, and Today, we want to give you a chance both to respond and and maybe pray together amongst yourselves, as we've done uh, a few times now uh, over the last month. I invite you to just, if you want to pray by yourself, go for it. You have a bulletin that has a prayer card on it, and we would love for you to fill out that prayer card. And there's a little, it it tears off. Trust me, it it works. It works well. Tear it off. Put it in the offering baskets up here. Um, Put it in the back back there. Let us know what's going through your mind and your heart, how we can pray for you. But maybe, maybe you're not feeling that. Maybe you would just gather together as a small group and pray this morning. And one of the ways that we would encourage you to pray is for all the kids going back to school, all the teachers, all the professors, all the stuff that's happening around back to school. There's a lot happening this week. Some college kids already in the thick of it. But grade schools and high schools are getting back at it this coming week. So let's just take some time to pray. I'll invite uh, some members of the worship team. Maybe they'll just pray or they'll play a little bit. Uh, Just give us some space and then they will close us with a closing song and then I'll come up and we will pray to close out. Let me pray for you right now and then I'll encourage you to get into some smaller groups. Heavenly Father, as we close out our series, Father, we thank you for the words that Paul penned to his young protégés. I thank you for their commitment to serve you. I thank you for their willingness to engage in the messiness and the difficulties of church planting and church growing and the difficulties of the world that they had to live in, Lord. They 
We're committed to serving you. And Paul had to remind them of that. And today, Lord, we've been reminded that that's the world we live in. Help us to find the ways that we need to do what is good, to serve you and to love you. So Lord, as we think right now, as we pray by ourselves or as we pray in small groups, we just invite you to speak to our minds and speak through us. In Jesus' name, amen.